Welcome to the Natural Lifestyles Podcast with your hosts, James Marshall and Liam McRae, where we will be diving deep into the issues of modern masculinity, seduction, dating, lifestyle design, sexuality, psychedelics, you name it. This is the Natural Lifestyles Podcast. Gentlemen, James Marshall here reporting for the Natural Lifestyles. I'm going to take you on a deep dive into some of the issues that modern men face when it comes to their friendship networks, their tribal associations, their ability to network and create leverage in order to maximize their dating, financial, and social lives. The spoiler alert is that it's much worse than it used to be. And if you want to live a vivacious, creative, exciting social and dating life, then you're going to need to put in work because society man is working against you. I've talked before about the way that most modern men operate. And that is that they act as if they live in a tiny village. Even though they might live in a city of half a million, a million plus people, they act in a way as if they're moving about a tiny, uh, you know, Neolithic village in the sense that they go through the same kind of maze geographically every single day. They go to the same coffee shop. They go to work, hang out with their half a dozen closest work colleagues, whatever friendship circle that they have, usually, which is a residual from high school or college. They hang out with those same people every Friday, Saturday or Sundays or whenever they have time off and then navigate the rest of the time as if they're the rest of humanity around them doesn't exist, right? So if you were to like remove, if you followed one average man through his day through a city and removed everything that he doesn't interact with, it would come down to how many people that he's actually touching base with. Maybe half a dozen in terms of service staff saying, thank you, I'll have a latte with, uh, you know, oat milk or whatever. These kinds of very basic interactions, their work-life interactions, which you know, for many people these days means being alone in your room or in your home office, interacting with people only in the virtual sense. And then their social networks, to be blunt, suck, right? So I was, I was looking at some stats recently and I've, like, I've noted this just anecdotally, just by watching things change as I've grown up since the 90s when I was a, you know, teenager, young guy out creating social worlds and, and have observed this throughout the last subsequent decades in my personal life, in my friends, and of course, in the thousands of students that I've, I've worked with. And what is very clear, both anecdotally and statistically, is that men's social networks have shrunk massively and continue to shrink. So what does that mean in, in real terms? You can see that since the 90s, when I was growing up, back when I had an undercut and listened to Nirvana and wore combat boots unironically, back in, in those days, and we, we know what's different since then now, which is primarily the internet and the way that people work has changed drastically. Back then, around 40% of men reported that they had 10 or more close friends, right? So a good, decent tribal unit of, of supportive friends. These days, that is more like 15%. Right, which, which means, maths brain, that like 85% of men today report that they have less than 10 close friends. And it's worse with the millennials and the Zoomers who uh, have reported that up to 30% of them have no close friends at all. Now, why is this problematic? Well, in order to look at what's wrong today, let's uh, take a brief jaunt back in time to, let's say, the Bronze Age or even before. Because if we look historically, human beings became the modern Homo sapien around 100,000 years ago. There's quite a lot of debate about exactly when, but there was this cognitive revolution where we went from some kind of Homo sapien and then something in our brain changed, maybe because we ate lots of magic mushrooms, according to the stoned ape theory, but 
probably not as well. But something changed in our brains which made us smarter and better able to coordinate and cooperate in, in our groups. When we first started out, we were just one of many hominids, you know, ape-like creatures that were wandering around Africa, some of which were much bigger and stronger than us. And so for a long time, the, the human population was tiny and precarious. But at some point around 100K years ago, things changed. And within the continent of Africa, we then spent the next number of tens of thousands of years spreading throughout Africa, creating all sorts of genetic and cultural diversity and, and breaking off into small tribal units of somewhere around 100 people, right? And, th and this, this continued until we finally figured out how to get into the European continent and then over the next 40,000 years or so spread all throughout the, the planet and created the infinite number of wild and wonderful ways that humans managed to coordinate. Now, take this point, as I'm starting to talk about historical things that are long lost in the historical record, which we're basing information primarily on genetic shadows where we can see where you know genetic groups went and marauded and raped and integrated and archaeological evidence. So we don't have first-hand accounts of a lot of these societies, but it is evident that humans operated within these small tribal units of somewhere around 100 people. Now, it's not that they never came in contact with anyone else. The Plains Indians had confederations where every season for the buffalo hunt, all these pods of 100 tribal people within their smaller tribal units would come and combine together to form mega tribes in order to go and hunt the buffalo. And of course, we've seen that throughout history countless, countless times where you know, all of the Gallic tribes get together to try and fight off the Romans or to, to invade or to migrate and so on. So you had these big conglomerations of similar typed people of different similar language groups, similar cultural backgrounds, although they may be at each other's throats and murdering and raiding each other half the time and then trading and marrying in within each other at other times. So the, the caveat on all this is that I'm not trying to say that there was some golden age. I'm not a neoconservative who thinks that we need to go back to some particular way of living that was a golden age for humans. Because, you know, back in the day when we were wandering the steppes or on the savannah or wherever the, wherever it was that humans clung to existence, we had all sorts of other problems. Now we, we may not have had social cohesion or kinship problems, but we had lots of other ones. You know, if you got a scratch and it got infected, you died. If you got a tooth infection, you died. 50% chance that your wife was going to die in childbirth. Rates of, of, of murder and, and ra raiding between similar, similar or contrasting cultures meant that, you know, murder rates were extraordinarily high, right? So there was, I'm not a hippie who's like saying we should all go back to living on the savannah and, and living in, you know, tribal groups that those days are long gone. But there's some interesting things to look at because our brains, our, our way that we operated as social animals was hardwired way, way back in the day, right? This is, you know, fairly common knowledge that, okay, our, our brains were built around these smaller scale societies. And often that's why we have a lot of confusion in modern life because we're trying to process all of this massive amount of data and input and people that our brains are not necessarily built for. We're built for these smaller kinship uh, systems. But what I want to have a think about is let's have a bit of a thought experiment and try to imagine what that might have actually been like in, in real terms. Now, as I said, like there have been tens of thousands of different ways that humans organize themselves. So I'm just, you know, pulling out this hypothetical tribe and, you know, it's not necessarily accurate and there would have been all sorts of other ways that they may have organized, but what would have been fairly common across cultures 
is the fact that like, if we look at this and we think, okay, there was a, around a hundred people in my immediate group that I spent most of my life with. As I said, I may have had contact with people in various, in, in other tribes, various seasonal reasons. We may have come together for trading of women or trading of goods for cultural events. You know, the Druids would have called us all together to, you know, sacrifice a virgin or whatever it was that we thought would placate the gods. But for the most part, we were spending time with these hundred people. Now, they weren't a hundred random people. They were kin. They were v- almost all of them blood relations and. That's an interesting, you know, little side note, which I was, when I was doing some research on, on history, as I am wont to do, that the concept of the individual as opposed to clans and kinship relationships only started when the Catholic Church banned marrying cousins. Fun fact, that was in the 14th, 15th-ish century, I think. And up until then, everyone, and we can extrapolate that out into all different cultures, okay, there would have been various taboos that said you couldn't or, or could, but... Most, mostly people were marrying two or three, you know, cousin generations away from each other enough that you didn't have inbreeding. But all of these, these blood ties were far more important than the concept of the individual or the just, or the nuclear family as we know it today, mother, father, kids, right? Back then, the concept of that would have been, yeah, you would have had family units, but the extension of the kinship network was paramount. So if you imagine it, let's, let's break this down and think. Let's say there was a hundred people in a tribe. We could guess that maybe 50 of those people fit within nuclear family groups. So let's say we had 10 families that were mostly still blood relations to each other, two parents, a few kids, and then we can add in the other 50 people to account for priest class, the fact that the, the chieftains or the, the higher, the aristocracy of the, of that group probably would have had more kids that some people would have lost people in warfare and childbirth. And so you would have had the, the odd single male or the, the, the widowed woman or the, you know, unattached children who'd, who'd been orphaned and so on. So you would have had, and then the, the grandparents, which most people didn't have their grandparents living because most people died around, you know, 35, 40. So there would have been maybe, you know, 20% of, of those families would have also had living grandparents. So if we look at that and we can, we can extrapolate that that was kind of the rough spread of what would make up that kinship network. What this would have meant for you as a man growing up within this tribal unit would have been that your generation would have included somewhere around 10 to 20 males of around the same age as you. Most of them very close blood relations or people that you'd been brought up with since you were a child. And that core group of 10 men of your generation would have formed the core of your masculine tribe. This would have been the unit from which you operated from in order to do what? To hunt, to plant and grow crops, to herd animals, to go to war and to raid, to defend your homeland or your, your village and so on, right? So within this small group, within the 100-ish people, maybe the, you as a guy growing up would have had 10-ish close compatriots who you relied on absolutely in the sense that, you know, you needed to back each other up in warfare. You needed to combine all of your efforts to make sure that the harvests work. Of course, there was all sorts of religious and cultural obligations that you would have had as well. And all of these things growing up through clear initiation rites, going from boyhood, being taken away from your mother at seven and taken out with the men to go hunting and uh, to go through various initiation rites to move from boyhood into manhood. All of this would have been done in collaboration with your nine other bros who were going through this with you. And as you, as you grew uh, and then become of marrying age, you would then create families, which would all be interconnected. And then you'd end up 
marrying your daughter off to your buddy's son, and then the process would continue generation after generation until some step tribe marauded in and massacred all the men and stole all the women and then integrated them into their tribe and then continued in their own way. And so the, the horror and beauty of civilization continues. Now, of course, there were advantages and disadvantages to this. I, again, I don't want to like create this as some golden age and that we need to all return to tribal units of 100. That's impossible and not pragmatic and wouldn't suit us, right? Because one of the things that you would have to realize is that within those cultural groups, there was necessitated 100% conformity, 100%. You didn't get to, you know, I don't know, believe in another type of God. You didn't get to live in another type of lifestyle. The cultural unit depended on you fitting into your place and staying within that, performing your role in your adolescence, in your adulthood, in your older age. Uh, there was various roles that you would have had to adhere to. Of course, all the cultural norms. Very often, who, who you ended up marrying was not a matter of choice, but was a matter of allocation. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe many of us would consider that to be an advantage today in the sense that at least you got laid and someone was like, here's your wife. I know she's a bit stumpy, but she is strong of leg and kind of push a plow. And we need you to marry her because she's related to that guy and he is important for us to impress or whatever it was. So there would have been almost no personal choice in the, in the way that we understand it today. And that's one of the, the massive advantages, although, it, I mean, it can be confusing and scary, but for the modern male is that even, you know, even two or three generations ago, most of us would have had to adhere almost 100% and conform to the mores of our cultural group at the time. These days we live in, you know, post-cultural or post-modern situations where everything that ever happened and every type of cultural and religious and lifestyle pathway that has ever existed, more or less, is happening today, right? You can be a pagan. You can be, you know, an extremist of, uh, as an ideologue. You can be free thinking and pull ideas and ideologies and ways of living from 15 different sources if you want and cobble them together in your own way of living. That's one of the, what I think is the one of the most exciting parts of being a young or a single guy in this day and age. Now, of course, on the flip side of that, it creates a lot of confusion. Many of us, I know, in my situation, I didn't have uncles and elders taking me out uh, when I was young and teaching me the ways of manhood. I had to figure that out myself and with my contemporaries and to go out and seek my own mentors and different lineages and different philo philosophies to try and cobble together my own way of living, which, you know, is a big issue for a lot of men today because they are lost, right? Because they don't have connection to cultural ties to initiation rites, they never really have a clear transition between boyhood and manhood. And we see this, you know, with a generation of men who operate like adolescents in many ways. They may still hold down jobs, you know, they may still be functional members of society. I'm not just talking about guys who hide in their parents' basements, but men who have not necessarily learnt how to leave their childhood behind, how to process emotions, how to deal with anger and frustration, how to negotiate, and most importantly for this video, how to combine with other men in order to maximize their results. Because if we look back at those early tribal units, these groups of six to 10-ish men, this is the way that men have always succeeded. And as societies started to scale, right, so we come from these early stage, basically hunter-gatherer or herding or semi-agricultural societies, 
that as we started to collect in areas where there was a lot more resources in the Indus Valley, in Mesopotamia, in the Fertile Crescent, in China, where there was a lot more resources and people started creating agriculture, which meant, meant that populations could boom and early villages, early proto-cities, city-states, and eventually civilizations and later empires and countries appeared, right? But even as we start seeing these things scaling, if you look at any group of power, power brokers, they were almost always grouped in in these groups of six to 10 men, right? If we look at, you know, the king and his nobles, or we, or we take it down into the, you know, the average person, the farmer's working together to cultivate 10 acres of land with five families, for example, or war bands getting together and going out and, and raiding and trading and so on. And men throughout history have been able to dominate and, let's say, operate most effectively within their environments when they have strong bonds with this group of people. We find it difficult to have extraordinarily intimate and strong bonds with dozens and dozens or hundreds of people. Although, you know, back in the day, you got your hundred people out of the box, right? And, and of course, within that, there would have been all sorts of dramas and jealousies and backstabbing and people who didn't like each other and grudges and all that sort of stuff would have existed. But because everyone relied on everyone to survive, they would have ha- had to figure out ways to exist with each other and that you would have these close kinship and cultural links with around a hundred people. And then that would expand out when you came into contact with other confederations and then so maybe you would have allies within other tribal units. And the way that men would do that is that their six powerful men would then ally with six powerful to ten powerful men from other tribes who could then galvanize all of the warriors in order to invade or to build pyramids or to do whatever else that that they needed. So the reason I'm, you know, bring doing this kind of convoluted random history lesson is that I want to paint in stark contrast the way that we live today and the illusion that most of us have of social abundance, right? That we, that we have all of this potential of, of connectivity, of um, relationships that we could have, of collaborations, of partnerships, all this stuff, which may appear to be in existence, but for the most part is illusory and doesn't really exist. And to call into stark contrast again, how cripplingly alone and isolated modern men are, and of course this, this you know, doesn't only affect men, but it does particularly affect men because we're, we tend to isolate ourselves more, because we tend to not be as social, and because so many of the early structures, which, I mean, even I grew up with, you know, being part of sport teams and a choir and acting groups and having neighbours down the road, kids, neighbours' kids who I'll go and play with. Like, I, you know, I, I even came from that where there was those, some of those cultural out-of-the-box kind of support structures. But, you know, particularly for guys growing up in these generations, millennials, Zoomers, and to a lesser extent, us Gen Xers, are struggling awfully when it comes to being able to hold together or create uh, strong bonds with other men. And this is extraordinarily important, although we are often sold or insinuated the lie that it is not important. Throughout most of history, you didn't have the choice to be a hermit or to go it alone. But out of necessity, we created these bonds. And, you know, whether we necessarily loved the person's character completely, we would have to, have to find ways to, to bond with them. Men become extraordinarily close, not by having a beer on Sundays or like chatting at the water cooler at work. Men create strong bonds by going through trials together. 
right? So this is where they have to throw in their resources, their skills, their you know physical resources if needed, their collaboration, their time, their cooperation, and their trust and loyalty, right? Because none of this works without trust and loyalty. And you've seen that throughout history, why you know why there are so many instances of these blood oaths or vows to their lords or whatever, where men promise each other within small groups that they will back each other to the grave, kind of no matter what, kind of regardless of what side of uh, you know good or evil they're on or what ethical considerations there are. It's like that, that these men have have said they will support each other to the death, and then they will benefit from whatever you know, cumulative benefits that the group manages to get, or they will take the L, which could mean, you know, a bronze dagger to the heart, regardless. So these days we can live in bubbles in the sense that if you figured out a way to create an income, okay, and maybe you you work from home, you work from a computer, or you have limited contact with humans, but you can create enough income to pay for the rent and pay for food, you can live in a bubble. You can literally stay at home 24 hours a day, have food, and anything else that you need delivered to you. And if you can create enough income to sustain that, then you can stay there forever. We've all heard of this phenomena in Japan, particularly. I can't remember what the Japanese word is, but you know, those who shut themselves in, mostly men who've just given up on life and won't leave the house. And you know, that wouldn't work if they, they had to go out and till the fields. And that also wouldn't work without modern technology because sitting just alone in a box even if you're reading books, is going to drive you fucking mad because you're literally in a prison cell. The advent of high-speed modern technology that allows us to touch base with, chat with, video call with, you know, virtually fuck (laughs) anyone on the planet gives us the illusion of community, right? And so, and unfortunately, you know, for that 27-ish percent or so of millennials who say they have no close friends, what do they have instead? They have kind of like the McDonald's version of socializing or of cultural links, right? So that is the getting on chat forums or discord servers or, you know, being part of various sub communities within the internet or just absorbing lots and lots of information from somebody else that gives you a feeling, right? A feeling of being nourished, right? In the same way that, you know, eating McDonald's hamburger will fill you up, but it's not nutritious, right? It's not, it's not actually nourishing you. And if you only eat that for a few months, you'll probably get some really bad health issues and maybe die. But in this, in the short term, it feels like you're being full, like you, you've, you, you have eaten. In this modern world, so many men, the vast majority of their, of their contact with humans is done in this way. And really it's just killing time. It's just kind of keeping each other digitally company. It's like standing next to some guy you don't know at a party and making small talk, but even worse, right? Because it's not, it isn't real. We don't have the chemical interface of two humans in front of each other. We don't have any risk or investment really in each other. Okay, then, I mean, there may be things where people are doing business collaborations and they never meet and they, they take risks and they take rewards together. But for the most part, or, or increasingly, men are becoming more and more isolated into these single units. And then everything else is kind of outsourced, right? So whether that is food production or friendship or intimate connection or mentorship and of course physical romantic and sexual connection which has also been digitized extraordinarily fast and effectively it means that yeah you can kind of feed on the elements of what a human needs but you are not going to feel satisfied and over long periods of time this has an insidious effect 
on people because it becomes normalized, right? Like back in when I was growing up, if one of our friends didn't leave the house for five days and, and didn't answer the phone, we would go over there and drag him out, put him on his push bike and go and play soccer or something, right? It, it wouldn't, it would, there, people would be worried that there was something very wrong. Now, like, I mean, I do this from time to time a lot. You know, many people I know who are, who are extraordinarily good social animals can easily find themselves going for days or a week without really talking to another human being aside from the Uber delivery guy or the person down at the coffee shop, right? So our, our connectivity is far, far and intimacy is far worse than if we lived in a village of a hundred people. We'd have way better links. Imagine that a hundred friends all kind of related. And you know, that second cousin's looking pretty good <laughs> over there where, you know, you grew up with your contemporaries. You had elders who showed you the ways of the world. You stepped into positions of responsibility and power and, and connection within tribal units. And then you succeeded and failed as a larger group. You would have had no question about what's my purpose in life or, you know, do I belong? Or, you know, am I, you know, am I achieving my goals or self-actualizing or improving myself? I don't think those things would have been a consideration because that was all pretty clear, right? You're born into this. You believe this. We follow these traditions. We do it this way. It works because it's worked for the last nine generations. So far, we're still alive. This is how we do it. And you fit in. You're respected. You feel powerful. You get to hopefully breed and have you know, your genetic legacy and your and pass on your ideas. And so that would have given a very clear sense of what it means to be a man, why I'm here, what I got to do. And I feel like I belong and I'm loved and accepted and needed. And try as we might, we humans cannot delete those needs, right? Like it is hardwired within us. We are social primates who need to feel close bonds with, especially men that we and collaborators that we trust to the grave, that we know have a, have our back, that can pick up the slack when we are weaker or whatever else. And in order just to feel the camaraderie and, and inclusion within a group where people are your friends, let's say more or less for life. And tragically, and I think it's this, it is a slow creep tragedy for men in today, today's societies, most of them, and of course, you know, like half the planet still lives in agrarian societies where they more or less do live in these old school kind of ways. And we can see, you know, the disadvantages of those are poverty and reliance on the capricious nature of the weather and all, all sorts of other things. So most of us don't want to go and live in a, in a hundred person village. We want all the trappings and the fun and the convenience and the comforts and the opportunities of modern life. And yet, very commonly, we're just getting the digital crumbs of what's possible. And as I said, you know, it kind of fills you up and, and that's why it is so insidious because you can literally go for years, decades and live in this space where, okay, you have, maybe you have a small residual group of real friends left over from usually high school and college is when men tend to make them. Maybe you have some of those, but okay, people move countries, people get married, people fall out people betray each other. You can very easily have your, you know, high school buddies of six guys and have those whittled down by the time you're in your mid twenties or thirties down to one or two. And there is no natural way or no like automatic way that that is going to be replaced. And it is vitally important that if you want to learn how to succeed in the modern world, in this time and space 2022, when we're of course dealing with another layer 
to this complexity that creates isolation, which is the the pestilence, which I can't say the word of for some reason, but I'll just call it the pestilence. That okay, we we've all experienced what it's like to go from you know whatever social world you had to that being then nuked down to okay, I can't leave my house for months at a time. And unfortunately, we kind of got used to it because humans are extremely adaptable, and we will get used to and tolerate and fit into almost anything. Right? Like it's it's part of the the amazing survival aspects of humans is that we can move to extraordinarily rugged or difficult terrains and we can make it work, but we can also find ourselves in extremely comfortable terrains and get very used to that right? and not want to not want to step out of it because what's on the outside of it is the unknown. And, you know, humans tend to be both excited by and scared by the unknown. But when you have all this padding around you, your Uber Eats, your air conditioning and your heating, your online distractions, which is really what almost all of that stuff is. You can't really call those people friends. Okay, I mean, you know, there may be cases where people have long distance digital relationships that really are solid and you do have each other's back, but it's much, much rarer than the ones that are created in real life. Thanks so much for listening to the Natural Natural Lifestyles Podcast. Podcast. Check us out on YouTube at The The Natural Natural TV. TV. See you on the next episode.